0: As he mentioned, we are running behind a little bit, and uh, someone said go as long as I need to, so we might might be here till midnight tonight. We'll see. Uh, I I probably will go past noon today, but hopefully not keep too long. Um, You know, in our country, there is estimated today that there are nearly 1.4 million people who claim that they are a member of a Church of Christ. But that number... Probably we would only share in common beliefs with roughly 1,000, or excuse me, 113,000 that congregate in about 1,900 churches. We make up about 15% of the population and only about 10% of those churches. Who are the other 90% then that refer to themselves as churches of Christ? And how do we differ from them? Uh, How did this all come about? that there are differences, and what are the future of these two groups. I've been asked this morning to preach on the history of institutional division among churches of Christ. Uh, There are many of us who are aware that there are issues. We know we have differences among others who claim to be churches of Christ, but we may not know how that came about or what those issues are and why they matter. And those who are aware of both of those things may not know how we got here, the history that is behind them. And so that's what I want us to talk about in this hour. I know that sometimes y'all will take questions in this, in this hour, and uh, I will try, if we have time, to answer some of those at the end of the lesson. I don't know that I'll know the answers to the questions that you have, but we'll certainly open that up at the end, end of this uh, session. But before we get into this lesson, I, I need to make some caveats uh, about this before I go into this. First of all, This isn't going to be your typical sermon or or Bible class lesson. In fact, I doubt I'll even open my Bible uh, this morning at all, but I hope you'll understand that that's just the nature of the talk that we're going to be talking about. certainly going to be referring to uh, scriptural things, but that's really not going to be the focus of this talk. It's going to be more informative. Second of all, uh, I didn't live during the time of the split that we're going to be talking about this morning. In fact, I'm not sure that any of us in this room actually did. Uh, We are now officially... A generation removed from that. Uh, Many of us, however, here were influenced by uh, great people of faith who were before us. Hank and Janet Couchman, David and Betty Haynes, Aubrey Blue, Ellie, uh, uh, Oliver Murray, those types of people. And it's sad to think that such giants in my life are now passed on, Uh, but they are the ones who passed the torch down for us and I am confident that they have gone on to meet their reward. But I only say this to point out that we weren't there, but we can learn from the faith of our fathers. Thirdly, though I have a great interest in history, and particularly of what is called restoration history, I'm not a historian. So as I come before you today, I don't have any credentials of that kind. I just have a lot of interest in it, and uh, spend a lot of time looking at these things, especially in preparation for this sermon this morning. But finally, not only am I going to share the facts that that are just the facts this morning, I'm also going to share with you my own opinion about some of these things. In other words, not only must we learn history, but we also have to learn from history. And so in some parts of these lesson today, I'm not just going to be looking at the facts, but I'm going to analyze the facts as well. And honestly, I may analyze them wrongly, and I'm open to that, but I want to try to let you know uh, when it is my opinion that I'm speaking. And one last thing before we get into the lesson, what are we talking about anyway? What is institutionalism? Maybe you know, maybe you don't, maybe it's something you've heard of, but uh, you're not quite sure what that is. Uh, let me share you the, de- the definition that I found from a particular website. The doctrine or practice of a church sending money to an institution of some kind in order to carry out some work that the church has deemed worthy of support. In other words, and particularly what we refer to as institution is a human institution that is supported out of church treasury. And that institution may be a benevolent home. uh, It may be an orphan home. It may be a college. It may be a paper or something of that nature. But that's what we're talking about when we're talking about institutionalism. And the difference is some churches believe that you can do that out of the church treasury. Others are opposed to that. Well, I want us to go back and look at it, from a historical standpoint in our country. And I want us to go back before World War II. And it's always been, oh, I hit the wrong button here. It's always been fascinating to me how the culture of a society affects the church and vice versa. The church should be affecting society. But you go back even interestingly, uh, let's take, for example, in the Revelation letter, Revelation 2 and 3, as he writes to the seven churches of Asia, what's fascinating so many times is the church in that particular location is influenced by the, the city in which it was. For example, Laodicea, I think, is the best example of that. A very opulent town, very financially well-off, didn't feel like they needed help from the Roman government when their whole city collapsed under an earthquake. The church was the same way. I don't need anything. I'm self-sufficient. They became lukewarm, much like the the water in their own town that was served to them through springs to the north that was brought in in aqueducts full of uh, mineral water that when you drank it, you wanted to spew it out. Jesus says, that's the way you are. They were famous for making this eye medicine, and yet he says, you're blind. They were famous for making these famous clothes, and he says, yet you're naked, you're poor, you're wretched. And so many times we are affected by our culture. And I think another example of that, even in our own country, is the restoration movement. I don't know how much you're familiar with the restoration movement that uh, we sometimes say that we are a product of, even though we, of course, are are referring back to the first century church. But the restoration movement was a product of the nation's thinking at the time. Our nation was a young nation that came out of saying, we don't want to have anything to do with England or any other country. And that mindset was in religion as well, where there were brave men who stood up and said, I don't want to be a part of a Catholic church. I don't want to be a part of a Presbyterian church. I don't want the Church of England telling me what to do. I can read the Bible for myself and decide what I want to do. And so there were great men who started saying, let's just go back to the Bible. Speak where the Bible speaks, be silent to where the Bible's silent. And and, and so you see how history and culture affects the church. And the institutional issues were the same. Much of what happened in the middle part of the 20th century among Churches of Christ, I believe, were directly related to what was going on in our country. In 1906, the U.S. Religious Census listed the Christian Church and Churches of Christ as two distinct entities for the first time, although the split uh, between them had been happening for about two decades they finally split over missionary society and the use of instruments of music. And, and before uh, the next four decades of, of the 20th century, there was peace and there was unity among churches of Christ, not like there had been in, in any history before that uh, recorded. Both the economic prosperity of the 1920s as well as the depression of the 1930s were years of solid growth among churches of Christ. Uh, Although it's impossible to gather exact data, in the census of religious bodies for 1926 reported that more than 433,000 members of the Churches of Christ existed. Some estimates had it near a half million. And the reason I'm telling you this is that they were growing. Churches were growing not unlike they'd ever been before. In fact, someone once said that the Churches of Christ were the fastest growing religious body in America at that time. And not only were they growing numerically, but geographically churches were spreading. Before that time, churches generally of the Churches of Christ were in the South and in Appalachia area. But in the 20s and 30s, uh, you started to see it more along the Rust Belt, uh, Chicago, Indianapolis, Detroit, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, and those areas. And then you also had a spurge along the West Coast, that is in L.A. and other places along the Pacific Ocean. And so uh, it, it was great that things were growing that way. New technology led to the gospel being spread more quickly. The, the invention of the automobile, the invention of the, uh, the infant uh, airline industry, uh, radio. In fact, in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, churches of Christ were heard on the radio so much that one radio station, WLAC, was dubbed by many locals as uh, We Love All Campbellites, and that's what they were referred to because the gospel was on on that radio station so much. Well, at the same time, institutions that were associated with the church were forming and growing but were not supported, for the most part, by local congregations, you had congregations or uh, universities like David Lipscomb, uh, which was formerly Nashville Bible School, Harding College out in the West, Pepperdine University, Abilene Christian in Abilene, Texas, and Freed Hardman also in uh, Tennessee. Orphanages: Tennessee Orphan Home, Potter Orphanage, Orphanage in in Bowling Green, Bowles Home in Quinlan, Texas, and and the Tipton Orphan Home in Tipton, Oklahoma. But generally speaking. The church was doctrinally unified. By and large, there wasn't any significant doctrinal disagreement throughout the brotherhood. Really, in those first four decades of the 20th century, there was one major issue that they dealt with, and that was premillennialism. As a matter of fact, uh, that was another thing of how culture affects religion. There's a lot of things going on. It started in the Civil War when all doom and, and, and uh, everything was coming to an end, people felt like in their minds. That's when premillennialism especially uh, starts coming out. You see that whenever there's a war, after World War II, a lot of premillennialism, Gulf War in our own lifetime, everybody says, oh, this is the end of the world. Saddam Hussein is the Antichrist. And you see that same thing happening in the the first part of the 20th century. That was something they had to deal with. But the thing was with churches, all you had to do is quickly say that person's a heretic and nobody wanted to be called a heretic. Everybody was concerned about unity and so they were really growing. Uh, and instead of fighting each other, brethren were battling against denominations. Uh, There were all kinds of debates that were going on with the Baptists and even the Christian church, particularly over baptism and instrumental music. Uh, Steve Wolfgang, in his article entitled History and Background of the Institutional Controversy, said, when one looks at churches of Christ a half century ago, and he was writing in the 1980s, by the way, one can easily make the case, at least on the surface, for a high level of doctrinal unity and harmony, an agreement on the spiritual nature and the work of the church and the kind of distinctive no-nonsense preaching which was common knowledge both among members of the church and their religious neighbors. In other words, we knew doctrine, we as churches of Christ, and everyone else knew that we did. They knew where we stand, and they weren't, we weren't arguing with one another, but instead we were arguing about uh, doctrinal issues with other religious groups. But there was a storm that began to brew in the 1930s. You remember in the 1920s, it was the roaring 20s. Economically, it was prosperous, particularly for many colleges in the United States. But when the Great Depression set in, there were fewer enrollees and fewer benefactors uh, contributing to the college. In other words, they had less funds. Many of those colleges, in fact, had to close their doors. And that led to some men to begin to actively promote supporting Bible colleges from their funds. The most prominent of these, and I'm not going to mention a whole lot of names, but one man's name was C.G. Brewer. And he began to advance his theories in the 1931 Abilene Christian College lectures that maybe it's okay to start supporting colleges out of our funds. And in 1933, he had written a large series of articles in the Gospel Advocate arguing that churches should support educational institutions uh, and charities from their treasuries. And then in 1938, at the same lectures, though it wasn't recorded, many people understood him to say the church that didn't have Abilene Christian College on their budget had the wrong preacher at their church. Well, at that time, no one was publicly supporting Brewer. He was kind of a lone wolf out there doing all this stuff. But when some prominent men within the Brotherhood were asked, how do you feel about these things? They said, well, we don't want to talk about it right now. And so this issue was just kind of swept on the rug, under the rug. And one of the reasons that was is because World War II was right on the horizon. And as it began to start building up in Europe, the Brotherhood issues shifted from even talking about supporting institutions to talking about whether or not brethren should actually fight within the war. Can a Christian fight? And that was particularly seen in brotherhood papers. But I want you to understand that division was not prevented. It was only postponed. It is interesting to note this theological shift really that occurred as World War II was approaching. For the most part, since the Civil War, our brethren had pretty much been pacifists. And that was particularly in the South and specifically in Tennessee. And that was due to the influence of David Lipskin, who was a, the, the founding editor of the Gospel Advocate. Way back in the Civil War, he and and a very influential person who taught that it was wrong for a Christian to be involved in military conflict. But even the whole staff of Cordell College uh in Cordell, Oklahoma, which was the largest college associated with Churches of Christ at the particular time, uh, they were all pacifists. In fact, in 1917, uh, regarding World War I, there were two students who refused to enlist, even in non-combat status, into the military, and they were sent to the Leavenworth Penitentiary, and they reported that they were even put before a firing squad to threaten them they needed to join up. In fact, it is said that they said, ready, aim, and never said fire to see if they would uh, bend on their convictions. But that just gives you an idea of where many of our brethren were at that particular day and age. But as Europe now is entering into World War II and U.S. is about to get there as well, there's a new generation who was coming along who did not hold to that same convictions, who instead of being convicted by some of these former uh, uh, beliefs, whether you hold to them or not, they were going with what public opinion was teaching around them again culture is is affecting the church most significantly there was a young man by the name of bc Goodpasture who took over as editor now of the uh, gospel advocate and his approach to most things was a lot different from the previous editors such as david lipscomb and uh, uh, Bowles uh and and foy wallace And it's generally regarded as the most influential figure of the Brotherhood at that particular time. But with rising patriotism in America, he kind of went with that. And he said, we need to be loyal to America, and we need to be fighting in wars, even as Christians. And so a lot of people were changing. And he put out all these articles in 1943. I don't know what your position is on fighting in wars or not, but that's not really the point I'm getting at. The point is, is there was this shift, and he was very influential in whatever he said a lot of the brother brotherhood went with it, and so uh, uh, this attitude I think would help st- at the stage for these institutional issues that are about to happen after the war, and so things in America in general I don't have to tell you changed after World War II drastically. For example, institutionalism in general, and I'm not talking about religious institutionalism, and institutionalism in general became the mindset of Americans politically social programs advanced by progressives in the early part of the century started to gain a foothold. It had been started with Harding back in the early part of the century, but where now it is starting to become a part of their lifestyle. Uh, Before this time, American's spirit was, I'm going to work hard for what I have and what I need, but now they're starting to become more comfortable in terms of the government saying, what can the government do for me for the first time in American history? And more so than ever, you see people saying, you know, if I, my child needs an education, I'm going to turn them over to the government to, to teach them in public school. If my farm is flooded, I'm going to have the government come and bail me out. And most notably, Social Security was introduced about that time that says, I'm not going to sit, save for my retirement. I'm going to have the government provide my retirement for me. So now America in general, the society, has an institutional social mentality. Uh, And no doubt that affected the thinking of even New Testament Christians. And so the church now is very ripe for this controversy uh, to begin. Second of all, in America, you also have the depression is now over since the war has come along. Uh, Another great uh, change in America. And so there's now confidence within the market. More people are leaving rural areas. They're moving to the city, and particularly in the south, where the states had never really fully recovered from uh, the, the damage done in the Civil War. Now, financially, for the first time in almost a century, the south is getting to be about on par economically with the rest of the country. And by far, that is where most of the members of the Church of Christ were located. And so you can see after the war, even members of the church now are becoming more financially prosperous, and thus their treasuries are as well. As Bill Humble says in his book, The Story of the Restoration, he says the larger, larger more expensive buildings and more affluent middle class membership, the number of full-time ministers, the increasing emphasis on Bible schools and Christian education and ministry outreach all reflected a gradual but impressive growth. He goes on to say after World War II, the church enjoyed a remarkable growth in urban areas as its members climbed the economic and educational ladder. The church moved across the tracks. And so things also changed with Bible colleges as well. You know, prior to the war, during the Great Depression, enrollment in colleges dropped because people couldn't afford the tuition. And during the war, young men were not enrolling because they were going overseas to fight. But after the war, people now had money in their pockets. And they had introduced the new GI Bill, which said that soldiers could have their education paid for by the government's expense. And so enrollment now is starting to boom across America in various colleges, including those associated with Churches of Christ. And these colleges found themselves in in this situation where they need immediate funds to renovate their places that have been let go for the last decade and a half, and they need money to meet this expanding need of, of students coming in. And where before the war, colleges were ashamed to ask for funds from churches, after the war, and they're more desperate to take advantage of this business opportunity, they're more willing to entreat churches who now had more money in their treasuries. So no longer was supporting institutions a hypothetical question that they raised before the war. Now it's a real situation where they have funds to do this and colleges are asking for it for the first time. Also after the war, evangelism in Europe became a possibility, particularly now in Germany and Italy like it had not been before. However, the expense that involved was considerable. And so as a result, what some congregations began to do is experiment with congregational cooperation, or in other words, sponsoring church arrangement, where people begin to send money to one particular church, usually a large church in a large city, and this church would oversee the funds of sending it over to evangelists uh, overseas. And such efforts then began to spread here on our own soul, Uh, After all, if we can fund evangelistic efforts overseas, why not do it here? And so in Houston, Texas area, the churches cooperated financially to basically do this tent-like meeting uh, in the Houston Music Hall that was overseen by the North Hill Congregation in Houston. The best known of these efforts, skipping ahead just a little bit, was the Herald of Truth radio program in 1952, that was uh, begun by the Highland Church in Abilene, Texas, where all sorts of people sent money to this particular church so that they could have this nationwide radio program. The support of orphan homes is interesting. This is the one element that just kind of snuck in the back door. And this is where we as churches have to be very careful about doctrinal issues sneaking in without us realizing really what it is. Because before World War II, though it was rare, for the most part, they had not supported orphanages, although some did without thinking much about it. Thinking, well, orphanages, that's a good thing. We'll just send some money to help these poor uh, young people out. But now that resources were more available, the floodgates are just opened. And when the support of other institutions were introduced, what progressives begin to ask to those who were resisting is what's the difference between sending it to a college than sending it to an orphanage. We're sending it to orphanages already. And they had a great point. So some stood back and said, you know what, you're right. We ought not to be doing either one of these. So all these socioeconomic factors tied in with this weak spiritual leadership, I think, from some of the most prominent men in the brotherhood, just made this perfect storm. So you had people starting to stand up in opposition to this. Men like Royal Cogdall and, uh, and uh, Yater Tant. And they begin to have some opposition. I want to share with you 10 factors usually that non-institutional brothers, the opposition that we have given to the support of human institutions. And I believe these things are scriptural and these ought to be our oppositions even today. We're not going to look at the scriptures as I mentioned on this, but I just want to point out these 10 factors in how we opposed institutionalism. Number one, we understood that God has a pattern for his church that he has a particular way that he wants us to work and worship, and he's laid that out within the Scriptures. Number two is this, is that his pattern is revealed to us both in three different ways. I keep hitting that button. Specifically, through statements and commands, or, and sometimes these are generic commands as well. Also, apostolically approved examples within the Scriptures and the necessary inferences or conclusions that can be drawn from the Scriptures. And going along with that, general commands in the scriptures allow for optional ways to fulfill that command. If if God doesn't give us a specific way of doing so, he just tells us to do that, we have options in how we do it. But if he's told us specifically how to do something, then that limits us in how we can do it. Uh, The work of the church of the local congregation is limited to the New Testament in three different ways. One, evangelism. Two, in edification, as we are doing this morning, building one another up, that including worship. Some people divide that out into a separate category. And then thirdly, benevolence. That's all we see within the New Testament. Those things are very specific. And so the church has no right to do anything beyond those three things. Then also, we have made the argument that the local church is called to do its work itself. Those three things, that we can't hire someone else to come and do that. Since Noah told, well, God told Noah to build an ark, he couldn't pay an ark-building society to come and do it for him. And neither can we. We can't simply pay an institution to train our children, uh, to take care of the orphans when that is what we are called upon to do individually. Then we also understand that there is a difference between what the church can do and what the individual can do. And God lays that out within the Scriptures. Sometimes those things overlap where the scriptures allow, but what the church can do is not necessarily what the individual can do. If I want to support an orphan home out of my budget, I can do that. But that doesn't mean that the church, local church, can do that. Also, we have to understand that when people within a local congregation disagree on a matter, the principle of unity restricts them. And by the way, this is something that churches of Christ argue in their debates with the Christian church. The Christian church says, yeah, we don't have to have instruments of music, but we can. And so churches of Christ said, well, if you don't have to have them for unity's sake, give them up for our sakes. Well, now institutional brethren are coming along and say, we don't have to support orphans. We don't have to support colleges. Let's give that up so that we can have unity. And they're saying, no, we don't want to do that. We have to understand that we sometimes give up our liberties for the sake of unity. The next two have to do with the autonomy of the church, and that is that each local church acts individually of its own. And that is that in the New Testament, gospel preachers who were finally financially supported by congregations received their funds from that con- congregation uh, directly. They didn't send it to another congregation who then sent it to, other ch- to, to preachers to preach the gospel. Instead, they respected the autonomy of the local church. And that goes for benevolence as well that church benevolence is, is limited, that in the New Testament benevolent money was sent from one congregation directly to those needy saints of another congregation, and it was never ongoing. It was just a temporary situation. And then finally, the church Jesus died to purchase is a spiritual institution with a uniquely spiritual function. It's not designed for social reform. It's not designed for political campaign. It's not designed to teach secular education. And so we have to respect that, that it is a spiritual entity, and yet institutional brethren, we trying to make it into a social or physical one. Well, arguments of both sides of the current issues, as they called them, kept escalating. We were, and I say this no doubt biasly, we were making scriptural arguments, but at the time they were, at least at first, not giving a scriptural defense. Instead, it was more of an emotional appeal that was being made. And those who supported all these efforts felt like those who opposed them were leading the brotherhood to miss out on opportunities to do good. Though they didn't always put it this way, their mentality was the ends justifies the means. Yes, we're doing this, but look at all the good that we're accomplishing. And we can accomplish so much more by the way that we're doing it. And so progressives accused those who were opposed of being orphan haters and starving orphans, and they called them Pharisees. However, orphanages weren't really the center of the debate. They were mainly used as a tool that saying if you accept the one, you have to accept the other. They must stand and fall together. And many were convinced by this argument because no Christian wants to be considered an orphan hater. You don't want to be known as an orphan hater, do you? And so people were following along with that. And tensions arrived on both sides. But history seems to record that the nastier attacks came from the institutional side. And those who opposed them were labeled as antis. Uh, Sometimes you'll hear that term even today. They don't know who we are, but they know that we're antis. And that name came because we were anti-institutional. And they said we were anti-orphan, and we were anti-evangelism, and we were anti-kitchen. And so we're just anti-everything. We just oppose everything is, 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 is their view. And so they call us antis. We refer to them many times as liberals or institutionals. They view institution. and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but institutionals and con- conservatives, they have a different view of that, of course. But uh, we refer to them many times as institutional uh, brethren. But any time you want to degrade a position without making a, a sound argument, you simply just call them by a derogatory name, don't you? Call them antis, Uh, and that sort of lends uh, more credence to your argument by calling them a derogatory name. In Acts chapter 24, we see Tertullus, the lawyer, doing this with Paul. He refers to that sect of the Nazarenes, uh, and he calls them a derogatory name to sort of uh, influence uh, the listener in a negative way. But you see these well-known preachers with ties to to colleges now became more aggressively uh, condemning of anyone who disagreed. And accusations of coercion and intimidation swirled around these colleges. And those with outside businesses were being boycotted, especially those who were non-institutional. And from the beginning, the non-institutional side found itself being outmaneuvered by these institutionals who held the reins of the power uh, of these large Bible colleges and most of the popular publications. Uh, There were many congregations that felt uh, the tensions rising but the first significant split happened in 1951. The Fourth and Grossback Church in Lufkin, Texas, divided, resulted in two congregations. One of them having Roy Cogdall as their preaching preacher. And as I mentioned, Roy Cogdall and Fanning Yader Tant became probably the two most influential leaders against the institutional members uh, movement. Rather, in years to come, and a year later, as I mentioned, the Herald of Truth radio program was launched. And that was followed by increasing numbers of other projects that were centralized under a few but large prosperous churches. And as a result, an increasing number of brethren began questioning various aspects of these endeavors. And the study of these current issues, again as they were called them, produced a tension between the boosters of new projects and those who would raise their, the pesky questions about do you have authority for this? And that tension was best reflected in the increasing vehemence between both sides as they were pressed in these brotherhood journals, these papers. You had Roy Cogdall's publishing company, uh, the Banner publishing company, that was created largely for this very purpose of of defending non-institutionalism. And meanwhile, the gospel advocate had increasingly had open appeals for church support of of colleges and orphanages and other parachurch enterprises. In October of 1954, uh, Showalter, who was the editor of the Firm Foundation paper, died, and another uh, editor, Rule Lemons, became the editor, and he openly supported institutions. So you see people are taking sides, and things are getting nasty. And other papers were begun as well for the express purpose of Uh, of examining these issues. You have the preceptor that was begun in 1951 by uh, members of the institution called Florida Christian College, which was later known as Florida College. Truth Magazine was was begun in Chicago a few years later. Uh, Another Tampa paper began in the early 60s called Searching the Scriptures. And none of these institutions accepted money from churches and argued against the practice. And as a result, none of them were ever as successful businesses as like the gospel advocate was. And also, there were several formal debates that were held in the second half of the 1950s in Indianapolis and in Lufkin and Abilene, Texas and Florida, Alabama. And all of these uh, debates were written down and and passed out for people to have their, their arguments made. But one of the key moments that led to a developing split also occurred In 1954, in the December issue of The Gospel Advocate, editor B.C. Goodpasture called for a yellow tag of quarantine to be imposed on those who espouse the non-institutional position. The yellow tag of quarantine, we don't really understand that in our day and age, but I guess prior to World War II, lots of times if someone had a deadly disease, you'd put this yellow tag on their door and it says don't go near them so you don't catch this. And basically what he was saying of non-institutionalism is don't go near those people because they will spread like a cancer to us and we don't want to have anything to do with them. And so in that article in the Gospel Advocate, he recommended expelling from non-institutional members of the congregation and firing preachers who took that position and canceling their meetings if you had them scheduled and blackballing congregations that resist uh, conforming to institutionalism. And so institutional movement had turned from persuasion to now isolation, and it was all downhill from there. There was all kinds of pressure that was put on churches and preachers. Some churches reportedly just gave $10 or $20 out of their budget just to orphanages and colleges so that they would not be labeled as non-institutional. There were deacons and church treasurers who, if they dared to reveal any reservations about church support of institutions, that they were known to be told, you write the check or you resign from your position. Preachers were had meetings that were canceled. They had support that was quit. Uh, whenever there was a preacher who turned from anti to institutional, a big feature right up in the gospel advocate was put there. So it kind of gave them that reward. They were talented as as heroes. Ads looking for preachers ended with no anti-need applied. Statements were circulated like the closest thing to an anti-church in, in New Testament was Antioch. And there were even lawsuits between brethren in all the newspapers to see. Uh, fist fights breaking out in business meetings, just a terrible situation. And by the early 1960s, institutional brethren, for the most part, were made to feel like that little brother. Go away, kid, you bother me. There was a smugness in the institutions about we are right and we really don't need your small number of extremists. After all, non-institutionals were hindering their projects and making them feel guilty at the same time that they're doing it. But ironically, that's exactly what the church had experienced a half a century beforehand with the Christian church, made them to feel the exact same way. You see, unfortunately, what we see is just history just keeps repeating itself. And so these exiles had to band together, and they formed new congregations. And so even today, some rural communities are the home to two or three small congregations with the name Church of Christ on their building as a legacy of this division. And by the end of the 1960s, the isolation of non-institution churches from the mainstream churches of Christ was concluded, and very little contact between them happened anymore. And so members of both branches practiced the beliefs that they felt like were truly the only correct ones. So where have we come now? Where are the institutionals now? Well, in hindsight the issues of the 50s and 60s ended up not being so much about institutions as they were about biblical authority. When you take an inch many times on authority, people will take a mile and run with it. You end up with that proverbial snowball effect. One thing starts it off and it just keeps rolling and it keeps getting bigger and bigger. Institutions really just became the tip of the iceberg, Once you begin to accept one thing that is not authorized, it opens the door. You've just thrown everything out to accepting anything, really. And such has been the case with our institutional brethren. In fact, it seems that really all we have in common with them today is the belief of baptism. And to be honest with you, many of them are even starting to reject that, that baptism is necessary for salvation. Among the churches that we call institutional there are basically two wings of that of these groups. Uh, there are the what they call liberal and conservative. If you, if you ask an institutional person today, are you liberal or conservative, they're not thinking about us at all. They have within their group liberal and conservative. Uh, when we lived in Lincoln, there were three institutional churches there, and we would call them the uh, moderate churches conservative and liberals. and, uh, and uh, you could just tell the difference between all three of them and none of them really associated much with each other. But the conservatives among them complain about what the liberals now are, and they say, the conservative says, they are now accepting theistic evolution. They accuse their brethren of being weak and having watered-down sermons. They have mimicked denominational worship even participate in sectarian activities with other denominations. They teach false doctrine. They're worldly. They're more interested in entertainment than spiritual needs. That's coming from the conservative wing of the institutionals. Now, we would probably say the same thing about them, I would imagine. But we see them using their buildings for club scout meetings, quilting groups, exercise meetings, senior citizens and family reunions and receptions and youth basketball teams and volleyball teams. They hold secular adult education classes and GED classes. They have counseling centers and medical and dental clinics, daycare centers and counseling services which provide, among other things, job placement services. They charge for concerts. They charge for movie nights at their buildings. They have gotten away from the first-century pattern altogether. And again, that's what happens when you open the door to not accepting biblical authority. In this town, there was a small group that met at the Air Force base, and it consisted of the Couchmans, the Haines and the Brumleys. And I was good friends with some of the Brumleys growing up. Uh, one of my best friends was, was Jamie Brumley. I hope he doesn't mind being spoken of in a sermon like this. But anyway, uh, Jamie's grandfather was the ones who broke away. And his grandmother was lamenting to Betty Haynes one time saying, if we would have known it would have gone this far, we would have never gone down this road. But how could you not know it was going to go this far when you start accepting human innovations? You know, in evangelism today, they have made headway throughout the world. You know the fact, it's estimated that there are over three million people in the world today who claim to be a part of the Church of Christ. And yet only 1.3 million of those are in this country. What that means is there are more people outside of the United States who claim to be a member of the Church of Christ than there are in the United States. Which would be great and all, except for by the means by which they are evangelizing in other countries, providing social things and meals in order to come and hear the gospel. And so in poor, especially third world countries, anyone who's offering the meal, they're willing to hear whatever you say. And that's even done some damage for our efforts in foreign lands where we go to try to preach the Gospels. I've heard of Gospel preachers talking about we just have a difficult time because of what the institutionals have already done as they are over there, making it difficult for us to preach the Gospel without them expecting a handout. You see, it's really not about institutionalism anymore. In fact, Greg Tigwell, who is the current editor Of the Gospel Advocate, Uh, I tell you that David Lipscomb would roll over in his grave if he would have seen all what has happened. He started the Gospel Advocate. He said recently, "This is Greg Tidwell, that he knows of very few churches who actually support institutions anymore." Uh, And it's no wonder because the institutions that they used to support make a lot more money than these churches do, and so it's not institutionalism really that separates us from them today. Instead, it's a lack of biblical authority, as it's always been. And Let me show you a couple of examples of this before we leave today. One is regarding the issue of instrumental music. This was something that institutionals up until the 21st century really fought against for such a long time. But you've probably heard of this. Uh, I want to read to you an article from 12 years ago. This is in the Christian Chronicle, which is a paper from the conservative side of institutionalism. December 12, 2006, and I'm just going to read parts of this article, so listen. The Richland Hills Church in Texas, which is the largest of the nation's 13,000 a cappella churches of Christ, has decided to add an instrument worship assembly with communion on Saturday nights. There's so much wrong with that sentence, I don't even know where to begin. John Jones, an elder and former pulpit minister of the 6400-member church, told the congregation December 3rd that Richland Hills elders fully and completely endorsed the decision. Who is their authority there? Is it God or is it the elders? He says there is unity in our eldership and we are so thankful for that. At least they are unified in this practice that they're doing. Elder Roger Dean characterized the congregation's overall response as extremely positive. In other words, the congregation likes it, so let's go with it. Well, the congregation at the bottom of Mount Sinai liked building a golden calf, but it wasn't a good idea. Senior minister Rick Ackley said that it would allow the congregation to reach more people who need Christ. What are they arguing for? The results that are accomplished, not the way that, that God's doing In other words, the ends justify the means. Ackley told the church, I know this, if our fellowship stays on the course we're on. In other words, if Churches of Christ keep on doing this without having instruments, our future looks bleak. Someone has got to be the leader. That's human wisdom. How about Christ being the leader? You know, Greg Tidwell met with some of people we would fellowship in May nineteenth, two 2016. I talked to one of the preachers. He invited, I think he invited seven preachers together uh, from non-institutional churches. And he shared these facts with them. He said 33% of churches among their fellowship now accept the instruments. And most of those churches are the largest churches among them. So he said 50% of all people in America who call themselves churches of Christ are now using instruments in their worship. And I want to tell you what's amazing about this is all this happened in just 10 years. He thinks that number is worse now two years later. And the technology, Facebook, Internet, all that makes false doctrine so much easier to spread so much quicker, and people get used to that idea. And so it's not surprising that they have accepted instruments of music in their worship, of which there is no authority in the Scripture. And of course, some of you may have seen the video on YouTube a few years back, where a preacher of the Fourth Avenue Church of Christ in Franklin, Tennessee, introduces this new intern by saying, and I'm quote, It wasn't that long ago that Lipscomb called me, this is not David Lipscomb, he's been dead for 100 years, the college David Lipscomb University called him and said, we've got somebody that wants to be a preaching major but needs to have an an internship. And I said, send her, and I emphasize her. The intern was Lauren King, and she, on that video, is interviewed, and she said, now listen to this, the Lord made it very clear that he wanted me to do youth ministry. I wonder how he made it very clear, because I read the scriptures, and the Lord makes it very clear that he doesn't want women to be in uh, positions of authority within the Bible. So the Lord made it very clear to her. So I started majoring in Bible with an emphasis on youth ministry, and I've done three youth internships. The Lord also made it very clear through a lot of discernment and a lot of prayer that I was supposed to pick up a preaching emphasis. And the people at Lipscomb have been so supportive of that. Well, Surprise me. Surprise A lot of the ways that I've been perceiving the Lord's voice is through having peace when I walk through open doors. If I have an unpeaceful heart, then that's not really where I'm supposed to be. But at the place where I have peace about where I'm going, well, that's where the Lord is telling me yes. She doesn't appeal to Scripture at all, because if she did, she'd find she shouldn't be in this position. Instead, it's about where she ha- feels most comfortable. Ironically, she goes on in that same interview to say, in the beginning of all this, I was really uncomfortable. (laughs) Maybe that was the Lord telling her, no, I don't know. If you're you're dependent on your feelings and how you feel about it, you feel uncomfortable, why didn't you turn away from it at that time? You see, it's not about Scripture. It's not about biblical authority anymore. It's about what they want to do and what they feel. David Lipscomb would be rolling over in his grave. Where do they go next? I don't know. I don't know. But when you open yourself up to not following biblical authority, you're open to go anywhere. So let me leave you with this. Where do we go? What do we learn from all this? Because this isn't just academic information. We need to learn from it. Let me suggest four applications to you real quickly. The first is this. The church is definitely affected by its culture, and we need to be aware of that. Sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes it's a bad thing. We're affected by our culture. We need to be aware of what our culture is saying, and we need to make sure that we're not listening to culture and we're not following just the ways of our culture. It's becoming more and more comfortable for women to have a leading role in corporate America. We ought not to allow that to come into the church. That's not the case. That's just one example. But we cannot let the church affect what we do. Instead, we must allow the Bible to guide us. Second of all, history is doomed to repeat itself. You see, we found this happening with the Christian church, the same division over instruments and music. It happened with institutionalism. My question is, what's next? We've got to be careful when we learn from these things. If we don't learn from history, we're doomed to repeat it. Thirdly, I'll also say this. Here's the positive side of all this, is that there are opportunities to teach that we didn't have uh, maybe 40 years, maybe when I grew up even. You know, when we were in Lincoln, we talked to people of the more conservative part of the institutional movement, those, those churches there, and what was interesting is, is they had no clue about any of these things. They would not heard of any of this. And so they're ripe for the picking to teach them. Now, we didn't have much success in teaching them, but here is at least some open people who are not prejudiced by these antis, antis out there. Instead, they are looking at things with fresh eyes. And not only that, but even some of the most liberal of, among them are saying, we've gone too far. And there's a knee-jerk reaction to want to go back. And it's increasingly having more conservative parts of the institution. I'm not sure they're ready to give up their kitchens and their support of other things. But certainly we have opportunities to be able to teach like we've not had maybe over the last uh, half century. But finally, I want you to also take this warning. And that is that is that we're not as separated as we think sometimes. It has been said that what the denominations did 20 years ago, institutional brethren are doing it 10 years later. Ten years after that, we're flirting with the same things. It would not surprise me if we start hearing within the next decade that there are non-institutional churches that are introducing instrumental music. And God forbid, even women preachers as well. We have got to be on the alarm. We've got to be like Ezekiel, that watchman who stands up and issues the warning that we have to stick to the Bible. We have to recognize that we may not be too far behind. So let us learn from history. Well, we have to have a teaching and respect for God's word. That's really what it comes down to. And may this church continue to respect God's authority and his word from here on out. That's all I have for this morning. Are there any questions that anybody might have that we can entertain before we leave this morning? Yeah, Steve. Just a couple of quick things. There was a gathering of 20 non-institutional preachers and 20 institutional preachers last fall in Coleman, yeah. Alabama that uh, I think, I don't know if the audio is up on the website, but you know, I know Jim Neeson yeah. uh, put that together. That's right. So that kind of goes along with what you mentioned about the current owner of the gospel advocate and that there seems to be the, just the overall sense of saying it's really messy when you do it that way. You know, yeah. when, you, when you try to do this work in this way, it gets, it gets tedious after a while. Okay. Let me give you my opinion about that. And this is my opinion. When Greg Tidwell two years ago called for other institutions to come in there and he talked about what he was doing, this was a business decision he's losing 50 percent of his subscription because they're no longer listening to what they had to say they are leaving the conservatives behind so he's looking who am i going to sell these magazines to progressives don't read their magazine so what he was calling those people into i think was to get us on board to start subscribing to the gospel advocate and even having some of our own preachers write for them so that that would be the case i think that's what his feelings were on it but he was to his credit open to come to that meeting that happened in coleman uh, back in the fall, and they had a great discussion, and each each side presented each of theirs, but I think they all went the, their separate ways, saying, okay, we're still not ready to get together. Um, basically, they are calling for saying, why can't you just give up your anti-institutional right, you know, ideas? And they said, we don't even support institutions anymore. Why don't you come over to us? Well, it's not about that. It's about biblical authority. I will say, though, um, I don't know about the recordings, but they have made a book on it now, that is available, and I'm not trying to <laughs> advertise books or anything like that. It's, I think it's called The Biblical Pattern or something like that. It's edited by Jim Deason. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, he also has a, a, a workbook, I think, that goes with it that's an interesting uh, book too. But it, And what it is, it's, he's asked those seven preachers from each side to write about their particular subjects. And I think what they basically did is took those speeches and put them in chapter form, and you can read that book. All right, any other questions or comments? All right, well, I appreciate your attention. Let's uh, leave this morning with a word of prayer. If you'll bow with me, please.